Net zero emissions is the target that everyone is talking about, from the federal government to foreign governments and from boardrooms to broadsheets. Although achieving net zero emissions globally is essential for limiting climate change, the target and how we get there are not very well understood. And one of the most contentious issues is offsetting. Can we really pay others to reduce their emissions or pay to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to balance out our own emissions? I'm James Ha, an associate at Grattan Institute. And here to shed some light on the net in net zero is Tony Wood, the director of Grattan's Energy and Climate Change Program, and Alison Reeve, the deputy director. The three of us have been working on a report series called Towards Net Zero, which contains five reports on climate policy that we're publishing ahead of the Glasgow Climate Conference in November. The first three reports recommended practical policies to build momentum towards achieving net zero emissions in the transport, industry, and agriculture sectors of the Australian economy. The fourth report is out today, and it's all about offsetting. So, Alison, to kick us off, what is offsetting? At its most basic, offsetting is about reducing or avoiding or removing emissions in one part of an economy or a company or a country in order to offset or compensate for emissions that happen in another part of the economy. So if you've ever bought an airline ticket and ticked the box that says, please offset my flight, that means that Virgin or Qantas or whichever airline it was is going to offset the emissions from your flight by undertaking or paying someone to undertake another activity somewhere else that reduces emissions. So that might be planting some trees, um, it might be reducing industrial emissions or domestic emissions, and that could be here or it could be overseas. Now, I mentioned there um, that there's actually two types of offsets that we can talk about. One of them is what's called emissions avoidance. So that's where you, for example, might choose not to burn a fossil fuel or reduce the amount of fuel that you burn. And that is a reduction in emissions that can be used to offset emissions that are coming from somewhere else in the economy. The other way that you can do offsetting is by removals. And this is where you're actually drawing down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and sequestering it away in some way. So that might be um, turning it into a mineral or a rock, attaching it to the soil, or building it into a tree or some, some vegetation. The, the key difference between those is that if we avoid emissions, we avoid emissions in the future. When we're talking about removal, we're pulling carbon dioxide down from the atmosphere that's already there. So we're kind of compensating for past emissions. And this sort of offsetting that you can do, you can do this, you know, within a company. One part of a company might do a little bit more to help out another part of the company that's got fewer options to reduce its emissions. You can do it between companies, you can do it between sectors, and you can even do it between countries. And how is this all regulated? How do you know if you're a company that's buying offsets from another company, how do you know that you're actually going to get what you're paying for when, when you pay for offsets? This is a really, really key question because one of the tricky things about offsets is proving whether that activity has happened and in the way that it was meant to happen and that it has actually captured or reduced the amount of emissions that you say you said and that you want it to do. And one of the ways that this is regulated is that governments and also private organisations set up certification schemes. So one of the ones that people might have heard of are ACUs or Australian Carbon Credit Units. These are 
the units um, that the Australian government has set up certification for. Um, there are also international units. There are various acronyms for these that you might hear of. But what's common across all of these schemes is that they have rules about what counts as an offset and how you count it. The point of having that certification there is that it makes a market in offsetting work a lot better because it gives people assurance that there's someone independent who can certify that activities have taken place and they've taken place according to a set of rules. Tony, some people would argue that we shouldn't actually be using offsetting at all and that what we should be trying to do is to stop adding emissions into the atmosphere altogether. And that kind of means aiming for a zero emissions economy instead of a net zero economy. Is this a good idea? It reminds me of growing up as a in, a in a Catholic education, James, where the first thing you do is don't do bad things. But if it turns out you can't stop yourself doing bad things, what you then do is go to a priest and negotiate, get some credits for doing some good things. And it seems to me it's the same principle, is that the priority should always be to stop doing the bad things. But if that's really hard, then you better find some good things to offset the bad. And so... I think that's the way to think about this. Now, there are other technical reasons why it makes more sense to stop doing the bad things, that is to reduce our emissions than to depend upon doing the good thing. One of them is the uncertainty question or the question of, question about integrity that of these um, offsetting activities that Alison talked about. Um, it's also a timing thing. Um, you know, to give you an example, all the trees that burnt down in the bushfires of 2019-20, that terrible summer, um, It'll take quite a long time for those trees to grow again and gradually absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. In the meantime, the CO2 is, in up, is up in the atmosphere from when the fires happened. And so there's a mismatch. So it would have been far better if the trees hadn't burned down in the first place. It would be far better if we reduced the emissions in the first place. So there's a whole range of reasons why we do it. But we are very confident from the analysis we've done in this report, James, that it will almost certainly not be possible to get to actual zero. And that's why this term net zero has emerged and why we will almost certainly need to um, not only fall back on, but also ensure we've got integrity around for the removal activities that will be necessary. Could you expand a little bit more on why going for zero emissions doesn't sound possible? What, what are the sources that we're going to find you know, really, really difficult to get rid of by, say, 2050? I guess one of the interesting things we've learned in the last little while, and maybe other people knew, knew this already, is that regardless of where you look across the Australian economy, the Australian industry as to where emissions occur, what you find is there's certain things you can do which are reasonably cost-effective, probably can do now, um, and make a lot of progress towards zero emissions and reducing emissions quite quickly. But like a lot of things in life, as we start to do all the easy things and low-cost things first, the more difficult ones turn out to be more expensive and harder. Now, it may be that the very fact we've started means we can make a lot more progress in the future than we can see now, because we will learn, we will go faster, we will find new technologies, and we'll probably be able to reduce emissions in the future more than we even think now and cost-effectively. But most likely there'll be things which are going to prove to be very hard or very expensive. And examples would include things like, well, how do you stop methane that cows belch out, which is just a natural result of the way they eat their feed? And um, while you might find ways of uh, reducing that, it's very unclear as to how we're going to solve that problem. Uh, in some areas like the cement manufacturing industry, it's a fundamental part of the process 
that produces carbon dioxide emissions. Very hard to see how we're going to do something about that. And even in the areas where um, we can stop coal mining in the future, uh, and therefore we won't have those emissions that are produced in the mining of coal, even after you stop a coal mine, those emissions that were started to be produced as a result of digging up the coal, emissions going into the atmosphere, methane emissions, they will continue for a while yet. And so there will be ongoing emissions that will either be very difficult to prevent or very expensive to do so. And with these remaining emissions, Alison, do you think we've got enough capacity to actually offset those emissions here in Australia? Can we remove enough carbon dioxide from the atmosphere here in order to meet our net zero goals, let alone help the rest of the world achieve theirs? It's going to depend on a number of factors, right? There are physical upper limits to how much we can do, right? We, we only have so much land area and there is competition between different parts of land for offsetting. So, you know, an example of that is if you decide that you want to plant lots and lots and lots of trees in order to do offsetting, you can't at the same time undertake um, some of the deep soil carbon abatement things that you can do because you've used that land up for something else. And we also have competition with other parts of the economy for how we use our land, right? We might still want to be producing beef or producing wheat or mining or whatever else you, you have on that land. So there will be a physical upper limit, but then there will also be economic competition for how we use that land. And there is also, I think, um, to some extent, there are social factors around how we choose to use land as well. You know, there have been some politicians who've said that, you know, planting trees for offsetting is terrible because it tears the heart out of rural communities. Now, that's probably, you know, an, an exaggeration for um, for publicity purposes. But, you know, I, I think we, we do need to think about to, w to what extent we want to orient our economy towards producing offsetting units versus towards other things. And that's a, that's a democratic conversation that, that has to take place. One of the things about removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is that most of the solutions around that at the moment are what are called nature-based solutions. So that's where you're trying to accelerate something a natural process that's um, pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and you're trying to make more of it happen. Planting trees is the really obvious one. There's a lot of other ones around vegetation management. There's also things about how you manage the natural occurrence of fires in some of the areas of northern Australia that have big fires across the savannah areas, the soil carbon and so on. The other category where we don't really have a good handle yet on how this works is pulling that carbon dioxide down from the atmosphere using technology. So that's coming up with something that absorbs the CO2 from the atmosphere and captures it. And then we can do something similar to conventional carbon capture and storage where you take that carbon dioxide, liquefy it and inject it deep under the ground where it essentially stays permanently. Now, there are some, some sort of reasonably nascent technology around that at the moment, but still don't have a really good handle on how much it costs, how well it will scale, um, how much energy it will require because pulling a gas out of the atmosphere is actually, it's really easy for a tree. It's actually really hard for human beings. So there's a lot there where one of the things that we've said in the report is the government really does need to put a bit more money into early stage technology to, um, here in order to figure out what doesn't doesn't work, because I would rather find out that that stuff's not a possibility sometime within the next 10 years, rather than in 2049, when we're trying to hit net zero in 2050. Makes perfect sense. Just on the scale of the 
problem. I guess Australia is responsible for there are about 500 million tons of emissions at the moment. Say we're you know we're in 2050. What's the possible sort of order of magnitude demand for offsetting that we might need, given what we know about technology today and, and likely developments in the future? It's a very much a question of what we know today and, and what we can guess about the future. And what, humans are notoriously bad at predicting the future. Based on what we know today, the, the way that we thought about this is that there's probably kind of, you can split things up into three classes. There are some areas where you can see now that you could get rid of 90% plus of the emissions in that sector or subsector by 2050. Really good example of that is something like light vehicles, right? We know what the solution is. It's electric cars. We know how to roll them out. Um, so you can see that pretty much most of those emissions we can get rid of. There's a group in the middle where, you know, potentially you could halve the emissions, but for various reasons, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. Some of that is around logistics. Um, some of that is around the technology not being quite there yet. And then there's that other group, which Tony talked a little bit about before, where it's very hard to see from a vantage point of 2021 how you're going to get rid of all of the emissions in that sector. Now, when you put all of those together, our best guess is that it's somewhere between 100 and 150 million tonnes per year of offsets that you're going to need. And that's spread right across the economy. I mean, it's actually very, very hard to point at one sector and say they are not going to need any at all, but they will need varying amounts. The thing is that that is based on what we know now. Technology has a habit of surprising us by coming on, you know, faster and cheaper than, than what we expected. I really hope that we've way overestimated how many how many offsets we're going to need. I really hope that we can actually remove a lot more of those emissions than what we can foresee today, because ultimately the ton that you don't emit is the ton that you don't have to offset later. So the more that we actually can put into avoiding those emissions, the better in terms of needing offsets in the future. 100 to 150 million tonnes sounds like quite a lot, given that today the way that we use land in Australia and, and sequester carbon in, in trees and in soil, for example, that contributes to pulling 26 million tonnes uh, 26 million tons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So scaling that up to 100 to 150, um, it's going to be a pretty big challenge. Not impossible, but there are definitely some challenges to solve along the way. If we pull back from 2050 to where we are today, Tony, what's the market for offsets like at the moment? Well, James, up until very recently, the substantial part of the Australian government policy environment was an arrangement which was created probably uh, 10 years ago, that best part of, in which the government was looking to try and encourage activities on farming properties to reduce emissions by planting trees and so forth. And so they, they put in place a structure by which they could these farmers could create the sort of credits that we've all been talking about in this podcast. In advance of many other countries in the world, as a result of this, the, the Australian government put in place a pretty robust structure for trying to ensure that when organisations, farmers or businesses undertake activities to reduce emissions or to provide offsetting activities, that they really had integrity. That, as Alison said, people are getting what they pay for. Now, a couple of things have happened since then. Firstly, the current federal government, when it was first elected, put in place in 2016 a direct funding arrangement to buy these credits. So the government said instead of uh, as Alison implied, people who want to reduce their emissions but can't buying these credits themselves, the government said, we'll do it because we want to reduce emissions. So the government created multi-billion dollar 
budget program to do that. And arguably, it's done a pretty good job until now. It's uh, purchased the best part of 200 million tonnes under contract for a pretty pretty low price, about $12 to $15 a tonne. And that globally would be a very low price and therefore very effective. There are two challenges with that, though, James. One is that there's a budget limit. So governments will not be able to feed the beast forever in terms of the amount of money that would be necessary to, to address emissions reduction across the entire economy. So that's one thing. And the second thing is that you know we still are going to struggle with some areas of integrity. So if you want to, for example, buy credits from overseas, you can do that today quite cheaply, uh, maybe a dollar a tonne, but not much more than that. However, many of those projects uh, are much more questionable in terms of the integrity. So what's happening today is that many businesses have made themselves commitments to net zero by some date, mostly 2050, have started buying up these international credits quite cheaply. They know that they may have uh, less real value, but they certainly can, with some degree of credibility, buy these credits and use them in their businesses. They've also started to realise that maybe this is going to change in the future and they need to get ahead of the curve and start buying up credits with a very strong level of integrity, but also credits that would help them with their broader uh, ESG credentials, that is their broader commitments to social and environmental uh, integrity across a whole range of their business. And that means being prepared to pay for what's called natural capital uh, or co-benefits. So for example, um, when you improve the carbon on your soil, you improve the productivity of the farm as well as reducing emissions. If you're dealing with projects where, for example, indigenous communities, their action is savannah burning uh, different, at different times of the year, uh, that's not only an environmental benefit, but also it's providing an economic activity for those indigenous communities. And as a result of that, we're seeing the price of these uh, credits going up because there's a demand for them for a whole range of reasons. And that price has already gone well above $20 a tonne, almost $30 a tonne. What that's telling us, James, is that the demand for offsetting credits is going to accelerate. And it could accelerate very rapidly indeed, as this concept of net zero really gets embedded into our overall economy. So as a result of that, that's why we're saying today, it makes enormous sense and a huge priority for governments and our Commonwealth government, not to be criticised for having a bad system. They don't have a bad system, but it can be improved. We need to get much better at reviewing those, those these uh, various crediting arrangements. We probably have to increase the amount of resources that are available for doing those review processes. We have to make sure there's no double counting of these credits, because sometimes it's at least possible today to claim the credit in Australia, but also to claim a credit by selling it to someone else overseas. All those sort of things have to be fixed. They're not impossible, but now's the time to do it because we don't want to find in 10 or 15 or 20 years time, we'll suddenly have to try and go, go backwards and try and fix things up. So our very strong plea in our report is that do two things today. One is get things moving in terms of where we can sensibly reduce emissions. Uh, and that, mean, that means good, strong policies with appropriate rules in place for how offsetting can be used, for organisations covered by those policies to meet their liability, but also start to really put in place, in this case, in the case of offsetting, the rules and regulations and caveats around the way these offsets can be used in the future. So that those people who do want to or need to buy offsetting credits for the reasons we've talked about already can do that with confidence. And they know that what they're paying for is what they get. And I think that's the, the real challenge here. So there's a lot of unknowns. 
But I think, as Alison said, it's one of those situations where we should absolutely hope for the best, but we should also plan for the worst because there's a lot of uncertainty. So to summarise, it sounds like the main recommendations for federal government are to bolster the integrity of credits to make sure that buyers have confidence in what they're purchasing, to get ahead of emerging issues around double counting and around international trade of these credits, to support development of technologies to remove carbon from the atmosphere so that we have a better handle of, on how well they work and how much they'll cost and whether we can really depend on them, and also implement the policies to actually drive down emissions across the economy that might create some demand for offsetting. Is there anything I'm missing or anything else you guys would like to add? Look, I think, James, it is very core, in addition to my somewhat facetious comparison with my childhood religious upbringing, what we're trying to do here is recognise that the fundamental objective is to recreate a stable climate. We had a climate once where the emissions that were being put into the atmosphere from animals and humans, I think we're animals as well, were offset by uh, reductions or removals of those CO2 emissions from the atmosphere by plants and oceans. We came along uh, and stuffed that up, basically. We've been adding CO2 to the atmosphere now for several hundreds of years. We have to stop doing that, and then we have to rebalance the system so that Every tonne of CO2 that goes into the atmosphere is balanced by a tonne that comes out of the atmosphere. And literally, that's what net zero means. That's the world we, we want to get back to. We can do it. We can maintain the quality of our lifestyles. But the concept of net zero, which has become absolutely a mantra at the moment, is fundamentally driven by making sure that the credits or the removals can be uh, there in place because we will not be able to get to true zero. And Alison, any final observations? Offsetting gets a bad rap. People can be very cynical about it, and some of that cynicism is well-placed. You know, um, as Tony mentioned previously, there have been problems with integrity in offsetting units um, overseas. There have been issues raised here about it by various people. There are some people who see it as cheating. None of that changes the fundamental case that we're going to need offsetting to get to net zero. Offsetting is not a substitute for reducing emissions. We can and we should reduce emissions as much as we can, but there will be that bit left at the end and we need to figure out how to deal with that and deal with it in a way that's effective and has integrity. Well, thank you, Alison and Tony, for coming on the podcast today and talking about this important piece of the climate change puzzle. Uh, I'd also like to thank the Susan McKinnon Foundation for its generous and timely support for this series of reports that we're working on. Uh, we'd love to keep talking with you about the issues raised in today's podcast and you can chat to us on Twitter at Grattan Inst or on social media uh, with the handle at Grattan Institute. But that's all for today. So look after yourselves, look after others, go get vaccinated and thanks for listening. <laughs>